0: Join me, Lord, we come before you in the midst of so much, and as is rightly thought, we find ourselves so needful, at times so fragile, but as we will open up this morning with your words from the psalmist and then from you Lord we will find that there is a place that you have given us to go and it is the place that you have called us to and is the place in the midst of all the storms of life both as individuals and as families and as a community of believers that we need to be drawn to. And as we will see this morning, Lord, you are so gracious and so faithful to draw us to that place in communion with you. So we just praise you for this, Lord. We just lift up this morning of worship and pray that it would just be a sweet aroma to you. And that it would just lift up our hearts from just the glorious strength and veracity of your word. Lord, we just lift all these things up in your ever-precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I um, will ask for a little bit of patience. Um, I was telling some of the men that I had uh, study prepared for when David called me a week ago Thursday and said, hey, I'm not feeling well. (laughs) And I just, by Friday morning, with all that David is going through, and Cherie and the family and all of us with him, just really wanted to... um, just point us to the Lord. So it'll be a little more devotional. It'll be um, hopefully uh, cohesive, but it will be very uh, topical, and it'll move from the Psalms to the Gospel of John. And uh, I'm sorry I didn't make copies, so but you've got the... You've got in your hands what we most need. Um, I want to just walk through a couple of extracts out of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And we read this Psalm 42 a few weeks ago, but this kind of, it's a pair of psalms, but if, as you really study it, it's, it, is a, it is just an outpouring of the heart, um, from these sons of Korah, which is fascinating to read their background and to see how merciful God is um, in the generational treatment of Israel. But let's just look at verse 1 of Psalm 42. And I'm just going to kind of skip along through here if you will keep up with me or try. But Psalm 42.1 says some fascinating and beautiful things to us through the psalmist that really should reflect the heart of every believer. I think that's kind of a soul question. Is this our heart? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. This is a really key set of words for the living God. If you think about that, living God, spoken by the psalmist, as the believers of Israel were looking from Genesis 3:15 and the promise of this coming one where the entirety of their faith was on the certainty of this one who would come, who has not yet come. But in the midst of all their idols, all of their dead idols, God was constant in pointing us to a living God. And as we know, the New Testament amplifies that in so many ways right that we'll touch on this morning but we have a living god who is in the midst of all of our difficulties all of our depression that is a god-given emotion that says something is not right (laughs) and seek me right as we'll see from these psalmists and what must have been going on look at the next verse three my tears have been my food day and night i know i've had those days and nights while they say to me all day long where is your god And I just want us all to draw comfort for as long as human beings have been breathing God's breath of air, we have been in a state of constant turmoil that really does cause us to, at times, question, where are you in the midst of all this, God? Which is why he started with, we worship a living God, right? But I don't think we should ever lose sight of just the human fallen reality of our struggles with daily life and that proverbial question, where are you, God? We are not alone in that. And the psalmist beautifully encourage us to not only understand where those thoughts come from, but to where to run to with them, okay? And that's what's so beautiful about these twin psalms. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember. And I want you to pay attention for how the psalmist goes from a thought from the negative to the place where God sends them, right? Because that's what we need to be doing. We need to be grabbing those thoughts and holding them captive and taking them to the Word of God and all the precious promises God gives us. And I don't care how dark the storm gets or especially as the storm gets darker and darker and darker right these things i remember as i pour out my soul emptying how would i listen to this how i would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of god With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So that you get a little insight into something that's going on here, right? They cannot worship as we are worshiping right now. They can't. And the deep longing of their heart is to be together with the believers, to be together with those that love the Lord, and to find comfort in the midst of people who hate God and are hostile to God. They treasured the communion and the worship and the fellowship. That's where they ran to. And you'll see this all the way through this psalm. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Verse five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? It's the conversation within ourselves, right? And it's the word of God through the renewing of your mind telling you the answer. Because here it comes. Hope in God. Would you stop thinking about this as if he were not a living God? That's the conversation that he's having. Stop it! Hope in God. Have you not read and believed what He tells us in His Word? Where does that word come from? Is it just man-made wisdom? Right? No. Hope in God. And here it comes again. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> That in the midst of that whole Levitical system, that sacrificial system, that constant sacrificing of lambs, if you've ever studied that, the the lamb sacrificing during Passover was stunning. If you actually try to calculate the number of lambs that had to be slain on Passover to satisfy the needs of each family, or co-family. The amount of blood that was shed on each Passover is stunning. And it was a constant reminder that there is a sacrifice necessary. And if you hold to Genesis 3:15, you will know that that sacrifice is coming. And it's going to be brutally bloody. They knew that salvation was coming because they trusted that Genesis 3.15 promise. And as you see it all the way, you see it in Abraham. Abraham knew when he raised the knife to Isaac that if God took him, God was still going to keep his promise because the Messiah was going to come through that line. And God would raise him from the dead. That is a faith that makes you stand back on your heels, doesn't it? Again, praise him, my salvation and my God. I want to just take a little detour. You can go with me or not, but I want to just look at Romans 5, 9 through 11. Just to kind of help stir us up. Because here comes that salvation. Verse 9 of Romans 5, Since, therefore, one of the many, many, many 17 therefores in the book of Romans that all send you backwards to look at what Paul has just said. Which takes you right back to the previous therefore in verse 1 of Romans 5 where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more Okay? What Paul's saying is yes, the cross was a central event in Christ in God's redemptive plan. But there is so much more. Right back to the living God because he's gonna rise right out of that tomb in order to give every one of us the hope of not only a new birth and a new life, but a eternal life that we can't even begin to comprehend. That is the so much more that he points us to and builds on. Look at the warning We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God that is clearly visible right now. If that doesn't stir up your evangelistic call, nothing will. For if while we were sinners we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more there it is again now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his what life you see the resurrection you see why the resurrection is so central and so attacked because he lived we live and all of our hopes and promises are fulfilled in he who sits at the right hand. And he is sitting at that right hand, putting all of his enemies under his feet. And that's where the psalmists were running to, back to Psalm 42 and shifting to Psalm 43. And I just want to touch on this ever so slightly. I love where the psalmist goes, right? Send out your light and your truth. He appeals to God. Just send out your light. Send out your truth. Psalm 43, verse 3. Sorry. And look what he says about that light and that truth. Let them lead me. Let the word of God the light in that truth lead us, lead our hearts, lead our thinking, lead our actions that flow from it. I think about John 7, 37 and 38. He who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And there's the worship in the community of the saints again. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with lyre, O God, my God. Music, (laughs) strings, all the beautiful things I'm sure you've studied more than any of us thought about. The worship was beautifully musical, beautifully musical as an expression and outpouring of our joy for what God is doing interior to our souls through the word of God and the spirit of God. There was the very same spirit and the very same word that was sanctifying the old covenant saints just like it is the new covenant saints, right? Conforming them. Transforming them, renewing their mind, so that they would immediately run to their hope in God as they endured all that Israel has endured. Right. Verse five. Here, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. And my God. And I want to just take a very quick look at Psalm 19 in the context of this idea of worship and the Word of God filling our hearts. But just look at just verse 7 and 8. and Let's just look at what the Word of God does to the heart of the believer. The law of the Lord is perfect. How many things in this world do you find to be perfect, Ryan? Everything is distorted. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise, Hebrew implies a wide, and here's what it sounds like today, particularly in the religious circle, it's all good, God loves it all. Wide. Everything's good. He makes the wise simple. Narrow. Have you ever been called narrow when you're defending the gospel? You are just so narrow. (laughs) You you just talk that Bible stuff. It is so narrow. God is so much bigger than that. That's what it comes at you like. I'm pretty comfortable with these words. They said God takes us from that wide, it's all good, down to a very narrow view, which is in Christ alone. Your hope is there my salvation from the psalmist. Skip down to verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer, And isn't it beautiful to just run your mind through what Jesus taught in his ministry on earth and see how he has pulled all this into his incarnation, the rock, the redeemer, the hope, right? I want to share from a devotional that has spent 800 pages on the armor of God. That is about 400 years old and he said something a couple of weeks ago that just kind of stopped me cold the veil that so many find over the word of God confusing don't understand it right? The veil is not over the Word of God. The veil is over their heart. The Word of God is divinely precise, divinely clear, divinely perfect. It is the veil over our hearts. It is the veil over the hearts of your loved ones when they look at the Word of God and they see this it's because they have a belief system just like Israel in the time of Christ who had a belief system of a Messiah that crucified the true Messiah. The veil was over their hearts. And Isaiah warned them in Isaiah 6:10. And Jesus reaffirmed it when he said, "Leave them alone." Fearful words. Be careful of the veils over the hearts, over our hearts and the hearts of our loved ones. Be in the word of God so you can take them to the word of God and show them where their hearts are veiled to the truth. And it's usually just plastered with false religion. So that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight. That's why we are here. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now I want to shift over to the Gospels. And I want to just shift to a a place that is so important that really helps emphasize two points that we want to be constantly... Renewing in our mind. And it starts in something John David preached a few weeks ago, maybe more on Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Well, where Jesus says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say the Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of those prophets, right? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And that is one of the most important questions you can ask anybody that the Lord gives you opportunity to encounter, and most certainly anybody that you love. And you will be amazed at the breadth of answers you're going to get and how utterly unbiblical most of it is. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, as we know, you are the Christ, the son of the what? Living God. Peter understood it. He was a mess, wasn't he? I mean, thank the Lord for Peter, Peter, right? But he was a mess. So that we can all kind of look in the mirror, and say, hey, Peter. <laughs> but he understood what the Word of God said. And he understood that that Word, that living God from all those beautiful scriptures that they had was standing right in front of him, asking him the question. But I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says to him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You ever think about that? Do You ever think about the moment you came to saving faith? Maybe even unknown to your experience? God the Father was teaching. God the Spirit was convicting. And the moment they brought you to that suffocating realization, that as my wife shares when she was nine years old, I am condemned. I am going straight to hell. And I deserve to go. And it is at that moment... That the Father casts you to the cross of His Son and says, You are condemned, but He has paid for your sins. And they divinely bring the Word of God through the Spirit of God to life in us so that we may be conformed to that very Lord for the world we live in. That's why the psalmist always went from the low points of depression to hope in God, the living God. He's the one that stirs it up in me. He's the one that leads me through his word. They've chosen to use the word of God, preserved, precious, and perfect, to do all of this. who do you say that I am? One of the crucial questions. What do you believe about the word of God is the next question. Because what you believe about the word of God will be very reflected in what you believe about God. What you say about God, what you believe Jesus is, what you believe God is. And if you disregard the inerrant, sufficient truth of the word of God, you will have all kinds of fleshly ideas of who God ought to be. And you will encounter this with those who hold those very near and dear. One of the most innocent ones of all. God is just a God of love. He would never punish anyone. Right? Right? The Word of God gives us the responses to that. And those people who are lost in those false teachings desperately need the Word of God rightly put in front of them so that they too can hope in a living God and not a God that they believe is all good despite the fact that they look at a world that is absolutely unraveling every day. How do they reconcile that in their mind? Eventually they just say, well... We're going to touch on that in a little bit as our Lord begins to unpack that. And part of what we unpack here is really a discourse that takes place over a very elongated period of time. There are so many things that happen in the Gospels, but if you, One Perfect Life is a work that Dr. MacArthur did that harmonizes the Gospels beautifully. And it allows you to see it all put together. And what you learn from is John, in particular, has six-month gaps in a lot of his writings that are filled in with the other Gospels. And it helps you see this kind of elongated discourse that John draws out between the Pharisees and those that are standing behind the Pharisees and Jesus. So we're going to see some of the, the highlights of that or the the wave tips of that as we walk through this. But I want to reinforce how important that we find our hope through the Word of God rightly understood, rightly preached to ourselves so that we can then take that into the world who desperately needs it, right? Look at what Romans 10, 13 through 17 says. And we're all so familiar with this. But in the context of, of this, It just seemed so right to talk a little bit about it. Romans 10, 13 through 17 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul goes into a wondrous exhortation in the form of rapid fire questions. How then will they call on him whom they have not Believed, how are they going to do that? Paul says, as he's looking at right, how are they going to do that? And how are they to believe in whom of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And how precious must that have been to Paul. As the constant memory of his murderous tirades. They had to be like the shadow that stood right there, right? Which just made his thanks be to God so much more filled with joy to see how radically God changed him. But they have not all obeyed. So here's the don't get discouraged. Jesus was rejected by the vast majority of people that he preached to, who witnessed the miracles of the kingdom that comes. And the vast majority of them Not only abandoned him in John 6, but showed up to scream, crucify him at the cross. So your measure of success is not conversions. It's your faithfulness to the gospel in a desire to exalt the living God. That's what we're called to do, right? Right? Because Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In dismay, by the way. <laughs> so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ rightly divided into a religious community and society that has made a God of their own making. And the God that we love and worship is in many ways an affront to their God. And it is the Word of God and the Spirit of God that penetrate that. And we are the undeserving, but need to be faithful, dividers of that Word, so that we can walk them through their strongholds, And pray like crazy for them, right? And the point I'm trying to draw you to is what the psalmist revealed to us, is the fact that it was the Word of God and the Spirit of God that stirred up their souls, right? But there's warnings, and there's two of them, and I want to touch on them fairly quickly, Matthew 24, 9 through 12 says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So if you want reasons to be discouraged about, or maybe even hesitant about, teaching and preaching the gospel, just go to Matthew 24 and examine yourself, right? Am I going to be a keeper and a steward of God's word? Because despite and contrary to what many, many believe, this thing is going to a not-so-good place fast. And it's going to close in on those who love the Lord of the Bible. And much of that closing are by religious people, very unified. And we'll see a little bit about what Jesus has to say about that. But we hear it here. And then many will fall away and betray one another. No, no sense of community. All sense of who? Self. Right? And hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Notice how that comes after the falling away? just creates fertile ground for all your false teachers when they can find a whole crowd of people who can be deceived all day long with swelling words, right? And because lawlessness will be increased, shocker there, right? The love of many will grow cold. Let's just give a very stark example. An 18-year-old pregnant woman could get loaded on drugs and get in a crash and kill her baby and be held liable for manslaughter. And if she just would have gone the day before and murdered that baby in her womb, she would have been exalted. That is a love that has grown horribly cold and lawless in every measure. And that is our society to a core. And that is the gospel we need to take to penetrate that. The gospel that just shatters those ideologies that Satan lied about. You don't need God. Why? Because you can be just like him. You get to be your own God. You get to determine the law. And you have lawlessness because everyone is a law unto themselves. And what is it that brings us back to God, God's truth, God's law. So it's the centrality of the word of God. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Be a discerning people. Know right from wrong, and right is according to what God says not according to what man says, right? So let's get into this John section. And we'll see how far we get. John 7, 5 through 9. I'm going to speed you guys up a little bit. For not even his brothers believed in him. Wow. I mean, you just got to pause on that, don't you? First of all, many will go, Jesus had brothers? I thought Mary was a virgin, perpetual virgin. Jesus had brothers? And not only did he have brothers, but they didn't even believe in Jesus? And look at the veil that was over their heart. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify that the works are evil. That's Jesus witnessing to his half-brothers. You go up to that feast. I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after these sayings, he remained in Galilee. Galilee. And again, we have to be reminded of the veil that lies over those brothers, half brothers' hearts. They watched Jesus grow up as their older brother. What kind of a veil blinds you like that? You read on at verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, and this is what I want you to to hear. My teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And Jesus just put a massive gulf between God's revelation and man's teaching when it departs from the word of God. And as we know, Jesus was speaking right into the traditions that we're going to usher him to the cross at the hearts of people who had a veil so thick over their hearts that they could not see the Messiah that God had spoke to the people of Israel for 1,500 years. In explicit terms, now that we can look back at the cross through the Spirit who has given us a new heart and mind it's the veil of unbelief for the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood you know how to be the second half of that passage You cling to this. You teach this. And you don't stray from this. And I don't care how many people tell you how narrow you are. Take them to Psalm 19 and say, thank you. That is one of the kindest things you can say to me. That is all my Lord's work in me. Right? That's what Jesus is telling them. I'm going to kind of wind it down at John 12:44. And the proper way to think about this is the window for most of Israel is about to slam shut. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. I treasure my love for the Lord. I treasure so much more my love for the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and all that they are each doing to bring about salvation and sanctification and eternity for us, because it is a triune God ordeal. And Jesus makes it explicit here. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me because the Father and I are one, as he will tell them. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone, comes the warning, hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, says Jesus. And a lot of people like to just stop right there. See, Jesus doesn't judge. Don't judge me, right? Look at the warning that comes next. It's a fearful warning. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The very word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Judgment Day is the opening of this book. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? For I have not spoken on my own authority. He's continuing this message that is now six months later. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this command is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, the Father has told me. And I want to just end at the um, passage that we touched on in First um, John 4:19. And I'll just start at verse 18 and we'll close out. There f- is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And here comes verse 19. We love because he first loved us. That first cause of any light that came into our life was the abounding love of the triune God in your soul that just melted away everything else. Right. So thank you for your patience, and uh, we're wrapped up.